You're listening to Food for Thought, the OFM podcast, brought to you by Vespa, nature's catalyst for optimizing fat metabolism. Hi, and welcome to Food for Thought, the OFM podcast, where we're here to try and give you some nutrition for your brain and get you thinking. And today I'm here with uh, my co-host, Doc Edwards. Um, He's my sort of doctor partner who kind of gives me credibility. And uh, today's guest is Dr. Larry Weiss of AO Biome. And today we're going to be, the title of our podcast today is Completing the Nitrogen Cycle. So we're going to be talking about the biome and and the whole idea of of completing the nitrogen cycle and all that. But I don't want to give it away. So Larry, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. Doc Edwards, you ready to go? So, um, yeah, let's uh, dive into this. So I think it's we want to get you conversing about this whole idea of there's a lot of play being given to the human biome right now. And a lot of it's what I would call noise because I'm sort of a not so politically correct guy. And I think it would be great for you to start giving some context, a big picture context about where we come from. And where we are today as humans, because the whole OFM uh, underpinning of it is, I've, I've looked at this from an evolutionary standpoint, as what were those evolutionary pressures that shaped us as human beings and, and how we've sort of devolved from that. So I think that that's probably a good place for you to take off, Dr. Weiss. So uh, let me start by saying um, your, your point about uh, noise is, is a pertinent one. It's perhaps not exactly the right word. We're very early on in this understanding. Um, the term microbiome itself is not particularly old. Our relationship to the microbial world has a lot of history that comes out of um, illness and hasn't had a lot to do with health until very recently. Up until a couple of years ago, no one had even heard the word microbiome. Those of us who were working in this area uh, were out in the wilderness largely. Now, as it emerged into the popular discourse, there's an assumption that we know an awful lot more about it than we do. We are literally at the threshold of understanding what is the first new organ system to be discovered since the parathyroids in the 1850s. And much of what we know today, perhaps all of what we know today, will either turn out to be a gross oversimplification or flat out wrong. But the fact is we are on a path of understanding which will uh, shed insight into much of our physiology that was ignored. And the thing that makes this different than a lot of the things that have come before is we're looking at it from a standpoint of understanding health rather than trying to treat disease. So we are now at the point where we can start looking at insight for the triggering factors that cause physiologic derangements that we see as disease rather than just trying to ameliorate the symptoms of it. Well, Doc Edwards, you probably see that in your day practice quite a bit, right? It's it's not you don't see the healthy people unless there's an acute trauma from an accident. You see sick people every sick day. People. Just, uh, I, I'd say we see seventy five percent easily just diabetics, uh, obesity, combination thereof, you know, and it's um and it's everything. You know, Doctor Weiss is is saying, you know, he's just lost lost touch with the with with our native physiology, um, and yeah, it's 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 what we see every single day. 
and I'm going to reset the frame of reference here a little bit, with it, which is um, our health was defi defined on an evolutionary time scale. Most of the time that we as organisms have spent on this planet, we lived in troops of hunter-gatherers of no more than about 150 individuals. We were closely connected to the environment that we lived in and closely synchronized as a group. So there are many people out there who are free of disease, but I'm not sure that there are many who fall into the category of modern or Western man who we could say are healthy. If we really want to be um, honest with ourselves, being free of disease and healthy are two separate things. Healthy is probably more around the way we were optimized as an organism so that we were self-correcting, so that the types of things that would disturb our physiology would rapidly restore themselves. We now live in an age of chronic illness. You know, uh, what, what you just mentioned around diabetes and obesity and hypertension and cancer and many of these things represent the non-native, the non-healthy state. And these are only when it becomes clinically significant. But how many of us are walking around with, um, with subclinical illness where we have diverged, our biology and our behavior have diverged from where it was we evolved. So we're no longer in that dynamic metastable state, which we would call health. We are now in sort of a subclinical illness state. And the idea is maybe what we could do is better come to better understand what health means and try to make smarter decisions so we can navigate back to that. And that brings us to this, you know, the, the topic of this uh, podcast, which is understanding the nitrogen cycle and the microbiome. The reason that's uh, important to us is uh, here at AOBiome, we have, we are working on a very specific type of bacteria. It's called, they're called ammonia oxidizing bacteria, and they are ancient. They are found everywhere. They are a constant fixture in every stable microbial ecosystem because they complete the nitrogen cycle from the reduction, from the oxidation of ammonia uh, into nitrite. And then there are nitrite oxidizing bacteria that take that all the way to nitrate, and then the cycle competes. Um, these bacteria are part of our native physiology. Our skin has about 5 millimolar ammonia. That ammonia comes uh, from our blood. It's about 75 to 100 times higher than the level in blood because the skin pH is about two units lower. So when the ammonia hits the skin, it becomes ammonium, which is not nearly so mobile. So the levels on skin are higher than those in blood. The primary source of much of this ammonia is the metabolism of protein in the gut, by the microbiome there, those levels can be as high as 25 to 40 millimolar. And then as it diffuses out, some goes into the portal circulation metabolized by the liver. Um, but as a portion of it diffuses through the general circulation, it's found in the blood and then it finds its way to the skin where these bacteria would live and would metabolize it to nitrite and nitric oxide. And these are very critical uh, bioregulatory molecules that more or less touch every physiologic system, not just human, but quite literally every physiologic system. And there is no zero level. Yeah, the, um, yeah what I was going to say to that is the, uh, it's true. We, nobody is fixing themselves these days. I mean, everybody's running around and unable to, um, you know, 
fix their their diabetes, which I'm sure people were able to do because they had to fast back in the day and you know they didn't they didn't take showers they probably had a good microbiome on their skin in their gut you know and there's there's so many ways to make nitric oxide and uh you know and i think uh, we're taking we're, we're taking those mechanisms mechanisms away and 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 i think yeah the really key point nobody is fixing themselves and i guarantee hundreds of years ago people did a much better humans at least of fixing themselves animals they still do a great job at fixing themselves today you know unless they have a mortal wound you know they go to the breathing and you know the exercises and uh and just kind of sit there and heal yeah we humans don't do such a good job of that that's for that's a really good point so so larry the the bacteria we co-evolved with for nitrogen uh fixing is the nitrosomonas correct it's, it's the family so the one that we are working with, and it may not be the only one, but it was also um, the same um, uh, species of bacteria that were found on a troop of un previously uncontacted uh, hunter-gatherers in the Amazon, a group known as the Yanomami. By, uh, this research was done by a team at NYU headed by Marty Blazer and Maria Dominguez-Bello. So those are nitrosomonas. These are obligate autotrophic bacteria, and what that means is that they cannot burn carbon for energy like most what are referred to as heterotrophic bacteria do. Their only energy source is the oxidation of ammonia. Um, and they have to oxidize 25 molecules of ammonia to fix one carbon atom. So they're incredibly slow growing. Their doubling time is anywhere between 8 and 12 hours. Um, and in doing so, they produce large amounts of nitrite, nitric oxide, and also uh, protons, so it tends to acidify the skin as well, which tends to restore skin health. But these bacteria are, as I said, they're ubiquitous. You will find strains of these bacteria. Uh, there was a lake that was a sub-Antarctic lake. They uh, drilled a core into a, about a year and a half ago, and they found them there. You can find them at thermal springs at 80 degrees C. In fact, between the ammonia-oxidizing bacteria and ammonia-oxidizing archaea, which is a, a, also a microorganism that does has, uh, performs this chemistry, um, you cannot look into a biological sample and not find one of these there. They are an essential part of a healthy system. The interesting thing is one of the places where there's plenty of ammonia, but we don't find these bacteria, are in modern human skin. And the reason for that is they're also very sensitive. They are the canary in the coal mine for our skin microbiome. They're what's referred to as a keystone commensal. And what that means is that their impact on the environment, on the, on the uh, ecosystem in which they live, is grossly out of proportion to their participation in it. So fully re-engrafted, these bacteria represent no more than about a tenth of a percent of the bacterial census. But they are the only ones that have the genetic and metabolic machinery to convert ammonia to nitrite and nitric oxide. So if you can... So, Dr. Ed, yeah. Yeah, Dr. Edwards, so as a sports physician, uh, kind of context this for, for our podcast is nit nitric oxide. It's a potent vasodilator. Yeah, we're... Um... It's come up in the uh, in sports physiology, as you know, as we all know, nitric oxide. It was discovered in the 1990s. 
there was a Nobel Prize given for it, and ever since, you know, we've been been utilizing, uh, you know, the nitric oxide uh, system, or at least capitalizing on it pharmacologically, you know, with the advent of, you know, nitric oxide oxide type drugs, the most popular of which is Viagra. Uh, the reason I say that uh, Viagra is used in sports. Uh, many high altitude um, uh, athletes, cyclists, runners, and the su and the like, they all use it. Uh, so they're trying to gain a, an, an advantage on their nitric oxide system. Um, and Viagra is not a banned substance, uh, just by the way. And they're um, using the beat elite. They're using uh, the beat elite. Uh, beet juice, uh, beet juice, uh, juice is, is, uh, is another way to go about it. And those are, you know, we've seen that through beet, beetroot shots, uh, increasing uh, beets and other nitrate containing vegetables in your in your diet, which I'm sure you can go, you know, a little bit more on in a, in a bit, Peter. But then, you know, and then, so we got to think about every way our body, you know, produces nitric oxide, you know, from within our blood vessels to within our organs, you know, and I think what's so neat about our discussion today is, you know, we're, we're, we're ahead of the curve, uh, at least in the sports world, showing how tapping into the nitric oxide system, you know, from which our skin produces nitric oxide, not only from sun contact, but through a popular, you know, a proper population of uh, you know, nitrosomonas type bacteria on the skin. And yeah, I think we have a lot to talk about there. Well, and that's, well, and that's, that's the thing I wanted to bring up, Larry, and this is where I want you to elucidate this a little bit better is these sort of mechanisms we've sort of invented using Viagra and beet juice are sort of like fairly crude and not nearly as elegant as what you're trying to do by completing the nitrogen cycle in a, in a manner that we've already co-evolved for millenniums and probably millions of years with. Yeah, the system was already pre-optimized. Um, when we started applying chemistry to our skin that killed the bacteria, we broke it. And now we're trying <laughs> like to... We screwed it up. <laughs> we, we did. Um, inadvertently, for all kinds of reasons... Um, we started applying chemistry that we knew very little about to this organ system that we hadn't acknowledged existed. What could possibly go wrong with that? And now with these other interventions, like things like Viagra, other ways of manipulate, manipulating our nitrogen metabolism, we're trying to hack the system that we broke. Um, and uh, I believe, and again, there's a fair bit more work that has to be done on this. We have some very preliminary data the data uh, that you quoted about the sun, about the sun, effect of sun on systemic nitric oxide. This was work that was done by Richard Weller, who's uh, actually on our scientific advisory board. Um, certainly suggests that once you restore this system back to place, things like blood pressure and all sorts of hemodynamic variables, but a whole lot of other uh, inherent regulatory systems, things around temperature, things around our ability to control inflammation. All of those systems are controlled by nitric oxide, um, and there is no zero level. Our systemic, we have cellular ways of regulating nitric oxide as well. But when you put the system back into its healthy state, then we won't have to hack it anymore. It will actually be the way it was before, pre-optimized. I want you guys to consider the fact that we probably were not born broken. Waiting, along, waiting for chemistry to come along and fix us. We probably were born pre-optimized, 
And each one of these steps along the way, which, again, inadvertently, unknowingly, we interfered with, um, if we could better understand what that interference was, we could make some better decisions. And, and you bring up a really interesting point about the regulation of NO here, of nitric oxide. Uh, these things are called gasotransmitters because they are their gases, but they act over very, very short distances, and they, resp- they react with other molecules to form these secondary messengers, and those have widespread systemic effects. So, for instance, the beetroot juice, which contains a lot of nitrate, um, and when you eat nitrate, what happens is it gets constant. There's an enterosalivary root. It gets absorbed and concentrated into the saliva. Uh, in the saliva, once it's secreted in the mouth, there are bacteria in the mouth that reduce nitrate back to nitrite. When it's swallowed and hits the stomach, where it becomes acidic, it creates nitric oxide. The reason this is important is if you were to use a mouthwash or a toothpaste that killed those bacteria, and this work was done by John Lundberg and his team at Karolinska, your blood pressure goes up by 5 to 7 tor just by using mouth, just by interfering with that one step of the nitrogen cycle. So even small manipulations of the micro-nitrogen cycle whether it is to, to restore it or otherwise degrade it, have, can have large systemic effect. And we, you know, one of the ways I, I like to think about this is when we intervene with a system by introducing a novel, patentable foreign substance to which the system was not previously adapted, we can manipulate the system to alleviate the symptoms of disease and other things that might make us feel bad, but we don't make, this, we don't make you healthy. Those molecules were not part of healthy. Um, We may, in fact, be taking you further away from healthy. If we can restore the system back to the healthy state, the side effects of doing so are not illness or other types of side effects that we think of. The side effects may, in fact, be otherwise systemic health. It's a very different direction, a very different approach. So so I'm a doctor for several cycling teams as... um as Peter knows, and, uh, you know, one of them is for AG2R. And, and on that team, so you're saying I have several athletes who are obsessive about taking showers and using mouthwash. So if we got them to stop taking showers and stop using mouthwash, we could probably improve their their performance, could we not? So uh, let's take each one of those separately. The mouthwash, the chemistry that's in the mouthwash they're choosing, they should select, they should choose that very carefully. So I would not have an antimicrobial mouthwash, one that has either chlorhexidine or any of the other antimicrobials in it. They probably don't need it. Um, if, if there's, there's other things around that. On the showers, it's not the shower itself. It's not the water part. It's the chemistry part. So um, there are parts of your body you should, you should wash with soap. Wash your hands with soap because it's an important public health Um, practice because we put our hands in parts of the world that we generally don't put other parts of our body. Now the question is, does your skin need all these other chemistry, this other chemistry on it? And I would argue that there are parts of your skin that you might think might be worthwhile, but the idea that we would apply soap all over our physiology without really understanding how that affects the microbiome. And in this particular case, look, right now we would not People who are not using, applying the bacteria to their skin right now, already, they don't have it. 
Um, they, it's already it's been long gone from them. Once they put it back on there, wash your hands with soap. Um, we've actually found we were able to formulate a soap and a shampoo that don't contain chemistry that kill the bacteria. But we're going to be the only people who are going to be in the market with soap and shampoo are going to be advising people to use less. And if they're really successful, they may not use very much at all. Um, because the healthy state is self-regulated. And, and yes, you know, um, hands, perhaps armpits and groin and areas like that where there may be a hygiene reason to do it. But whether or not you need to apply this to your entire physiology, um, that's something where there's still a lot more science to do. But the healthy state, the one we evolved in, didn't involve soap. I, uh, in my end of one, uh, I, I always test things out on myself because I come up with these wild ideas. And at the time, you know, they seem pretty wild to everybody else. So I inoculated myself over a three-month period and then did not use the bio, AO biome and didn't use soap. And it kind of floored a lot of people I wasn't using soap. And other than, you know, the natural manly body odor out of my armpits, I found that I, I no longer smelled like I had urinated all over myself after I ran and just didn't need to shower as much. And when I did, I just used a washcloth and water and, and, um, uh, was able to, you know, maintain very good hygiene by doing this. And it just kind of was kind of remarkable. And, and, you know, when I kept thinking about it, this, the whole idea of getting yourself inoculated, getting your, your bacteria back in sync with your skin biome, um, to reach this equilibrium. So that's where I, you know, started to look at the performance standpoint about, um, not just performance per se, but because of the vasodilating effects of nitrous amose on the skin surface also is a potent way to thermoregulate an athlete for performance in the heat. Yeah. And what's interesting is about, let's say about two thirds of the people who use the bacteria, um, and we have a large number of them right now, um, find that they don't need deodorant anymore. And they use, they use much less in the way of uh, soap and hygiene products. And about a third find that it doesn't regulate their body odor. And since they don't come with labels on them, we don't get to know ahead of time who they are. And as I said, there's, we are really at the threshold of understanding this. The microbiome is going to turn out to be such an immensely complex ecosystem that because we know it was the healthy state, we're starting to see health-related uh, outcomes from restore, restoring it. But in terms of what's actually going on and how any given individual responds, um, we are going to be learning a lot over the next couple of years. And it's one of the reasons why this collaboration, particularly with, with elite athletes who are at the very edge of their performance, is such a fascinating topic to me. Well, that, that leads into... Um one elite athlete we've been helping um his name is uh he's an athlete i've been helping on the ag2r team since uh 2009 in fact because you know i was the doctor for a tour of california uh for this you know for this team it's a tour de france team there's a friend they are a french team and um you know one one of the riders who recently did very well is named roman bardet and i've been helping him for years now you know it's just on nutrition advice, recovery advice, you know, just 
advice he probably couldn't get, you know, from a regular trainer. And he kind of, he likes the way I think out of the box. And, you know, I introduced uh, him to Peter. Um, and then Peter got him on the, uh, on the Vespa products. And he liked those real well. And then um, I, I should probably tell the whole story with Romaine because it's pretty interesting. When um, uh, off the topic of skin bacteria, when Peter wrote the... Um, article about the FASTER study and the capability of being able to burn uh, fat and spare glycogen um, from the results of the FASTER study, of which Peter had many athletes. And Roman Romaine, as Peter calls him, um, wrote me out of the blue asking, who is this Peter guy? And I was happy to say, well, I know him very well. And, um, and, and I mean, this is a guy from Europe, pretty on the cutting edge already, you know, I was doing top tens in the Tour de France, asking me about Peter and what's this article about, and I said, well, if you want to meet him, we can arrange it, so we did, and uh, um, I think uh, Romaine's warmed up to Peter very well, and some of the suggestions, which comes full circle, you know, Romaine had a very central question of how can I improve my thermoregulation or heat adaptation because it's always been a factor especially in the Pyrenees and in the Alps during the Tour de France which is run in July so you know Peter was all on it and uh, you know we've been uh, we, you know we've been using the you know the mother dirt and a AO biome and um, anyway he went we got Romaine on it and you know I'll kind of I'll kind of let Peter take it away from here because, you know, he's been in as much as this as, as I have. Yeah, well, yeah, so Romaine, uh, I call him Romaine because that's what I read. Um, but Roman, uh, he, um, Jonathan actually ha starts the story because Jonathan came to me after, first he went over the front of his bike and Jonathan is not only an MD, uh, sports doc and anesthesiologist, but he's also a cat one cyclist. So he went over the bars, cracked his head open, got a TBI, and he was looking for a faster way to heal. And he came across the ketogenic diet, but then went into, going into the ketogenic diet, he also found the classic issue of an athlete, which is you lose some of your top end. And looking to find that top end game, but retain the benefits of a ketogenic diet, he found me. And so that led to our collaboration with some athletes. And then Romaine um, uh, started to work with Jonathan. And, and of course, that article I wrote went viral and Roman did it. And so I think the whole idea of improving his ability to oxidize fat, um, it, you know, really intrigued him. But then we also started working with uh, introducing him to being inoculated with the uh, nitrosomonas bacteria, which is your product, so that we could get him to perform better, not just the thermal regulation, but just internally. I mean, we're, we're doing all kinds of interesting little tricks because after I'd spent a year just playing with this to see what would happen, I, I thought that, you know, there's a potential incremental upside to this, and there's absolutely no downside so that's where it took us. And, and interestingly enough, um, right in the middle, of, right towards the end, after two thirds of the tour was done, Jonathan and I received an email from Roman saying how good, thanking us and saying how good he's feeling and how good it's working in the acclimatization to the heat and doing well. 
And we were blown away because for him, we never expected him to even to be have the time to drop us an email, let alone one in English. And then two days later, he wins the stage, moves to second, and um, he's now, uh, you know, sort of the, the the saving grace of France now. So it's it's pretty interesting. And and the other thing I wanted to say about Romain that I think Jonathan will agree with is is I sure hope he's as successful as we think he potentially can be because he's the new face of cycling. The guy is squeaky clean um, for a lot of different reasons. Philosophically, I mean, he just doesn't want to do it. But in France, there's some real repercussions for uh, shenanigans. But he's the new face of cycling, the the healthy face of cycling. And and I think part of the reason uh, we built the relationship was Jonathan and I's um, approach to this is to get the athlete as healthy as they possibly can be in a very natural way. Um, because our belief is when you get a healthy athlete, you can get an athlete that's going to perform the best. And, and this little tweak is very subtle and nuanced using the nitrous Simonis, but as subtle and nuanced as it is, it's hugely significant. So, you know, we're, we're very excited, uh, about this with, um, both Romain and then uh, Jeff Browning, who I recorded a podcast with yesterday, who is a 44-year-old 100-mile specialist who ran to third-place finish at Western States and then 19 days later turned around and um, got a fourth-place finish at the Hard Rock 100. And and this is a guy who had candida outgrowth and used to get these flare-ups where his skin would itch like crazy. And Boy, since we've started working together, that's not happened. He had one flare-up after he got off the diet, and then since he's done that, he's had nothing. But then he's noticed that since he's gotten on the nitrous ammonis, it's things have just got even better. So, Doctor Weiss, what you know, one thing uh, you know, Romaine mentioned is you know he he feels his skin, uh, quote unquote, breathing so much better, uh, just better perspiration and. You know, and we we didn't do any scientific thermal, you know, measurements, that kind of thing. But, you know, he just said overall he felt better and that he was perspiring better. Um, And the last week he felt really, really good. Um, You know, and there, of course, there's some other nutrition things in there. But, you know, what are your thoughts, you know, with all with all this of what we just said? So this this is these are the um, so it's fascinating from where we stand right now. Can you? You hear me? Um, so it's fascinating from where we stand right now with what we're doing. As um, a little background, AOBiome has a, a therapeutic based on this that is in development um, for uh, skin disorders, things like uh, acne and a number of other things like that. And then we also have uh, this cosmetic business that has a, uh, a, a different form of the bacteria for cosmetic uh, purposes. And we get all sorts of reports like this from our users, how their skin just feels healthier. They feel healthier. And in a sense, it's sort of vague. These are kind of like, um, you know, as a doctor, you're familiar with case reports. Um, and case reports are important. These are people who report how they're doing or a physician will report how a patient is doing. It's not a full clinical series. But when you start looking at these, these are the red flags that say there's something really interesting we need to look at here. Now, that said, the mechanism of how nitric oxide has been established to work around things like 
blood flow, tissue perfusion, mitochondrial performance, things like this, is well established in the literature. So it would make sense that if you restore nitrogen metabolism, nitrogen flow with these bacteria, back to the state where our physiology was optimized, that these kinds of case reports, these kinds of observations, would be the things that you would expect to see. Um, what our job, or my job as chief medical officer here, is to have uh, a keen sense of observation and a healthy sense of skepticism. So we haven't done these st studies yet, but it's particularly exciting to start coll collating this kind of input and figuring out what is the study that we would do that would indicate whether or not this is something that is a result of our intervention. Because it's very exciting when you hear this. It makes sense from a mechanistic standpoint. It makes sense from the health standpoint of what these bacteria were very likely doing um, in terms of metabolizing the uh, ammonia to nitrite and nitric oxide. And now our job is to do some of the hard work of setting up the types of studies which would validate and prove our assumptions or steer us in a different direction. But, you know, when you, the, the reports you're telling me, that is the kind of stuff we hear from lots of our users. All kinds of things right along that line. You know, you know, uh, Larry, I've got a little thought here. We're th talking about all the benefits of nitrous ammonis uh, bacteria and, and how it's reducing the ammonia and, and other nitrates into more beneficial forms that, that our bodies can use. But let's flip this on its head a little bit. And could you speak to what happens to, say, ammonia and nitrates when they just accumulate, say, on the body and what potential pathways you know, other bacteria could use to create uh, um, a state of, of disease. You know, you know, it's, it's well known that, you know, nitrates are a problem, you know, in agriculture. And so I think that we ought to speak to the, the flip side of this whole thing, that without the bacteria, what happens? So, so let's do that. So um, the first one is, is that states of elevated serum blood ammonia are associated with, with illness. These are typically seen, remember, most of the ammonia in your blood comes from your gut, from the, comes from the you know, bacterial metabolism of proteins. So the levels of free ammonia and ammonium, we're going to keep those together, in your gut are in the range of about 25 to 40 millimolar. It's quite high. Since most of that goes through the portal circulation into the liver, most of it is, is quickly metabolized. But in the case of liver failure, where levels of ammonia go up over a certain range physiologically, they produce a fair bit of illness, including things like encephalopathy. Now, remember we talked about the difference between subclinical illness, which is no evidence of disease, which is different than what we would call health. Because I'm not sure we understand health at all. And an interesting aside is, by the way, the FDA has no definition of health. Health is a very elusive <laughs> thing to, decide, to, to define. The FDA is, a disease, is, is, an, is an organization that's around the treatment of disease. But it's emblematic of the fact that we don't understand what we mean by health. So when these are not on the skin, what happens is the ammonia levels reach, as I said, about 5 millimolar. They don't seem to climb much higher, and maybe that has to do with our hygiene or simply the equilibrium of it. But we're not sure how that relates to the types of illnesses. But the absence of these reactive nitrogen species, which are nitrite and nitric oxide, those do have health effects. 
And we've got a number of uh, lines of investigation that we are pursuing both in terms of our clinical science and in terms of the, uh, the uh, cosmetic product that would suggest that it is more the um, absence of the metabolites of ammonia than it is that the presence of the levels of around 5 millimolar that are responsible for the shift from the healthy state to the unhealthy state. Now, you also mentioned nitrite, and nitrite has had an interesting and somewhat checkered past. The assumption was that nitrites, which are sometimes used as preservatives in meats, could react in the stomach to form nitrosamines, and those might be potentially carcinogenic. Um, it remains a somewhat controversial subject, but it has largely been disproven because, in fact, that is the normal physiologic state of affairs. Most of the inorganic nitri nitri nitrogen that we eat is in the form of nitrate, which, as I indicated before, gets converted to nitrite and then undergoes the same sort of transformation. So there's certainly health reasons to avoid eating things like hot dogs and bologna that are preserved with nitrite but it's probably got very little to do with the nitrite itself and more to do with the fact that, you know, well, they're hot dogs and bologna. <laughs> you don't want to know. <laughs> you need to stay on the show. <laughs> um, yeah, and look, everyone does what they can do with these things. And, and we are, you know, we are on a very interesting path now that we understand. Look, we have always thought of ourselves as separate from the microbial world. Um. We are a separate thing from that. But in fact, that is a complete illusion. We emerged from the microbial world. Um, those organisms are ancient. They are absolutely necessary and they sustain life. We are immersed in it. It is one of our organ systems. The boundaries are not where we think that they are. Um, that part of our physiology uh, evolves rapidly as a function of how we live, the kinds of products we use, the kind of food we eat, whether we have pets, what kind of medications we've been given. The average American doesn't get through puberty with fewer than 10 or 12 courses of strong antibiotics. Uh, there are things that are going on with the, micro, with the, uh, with the gut microbiome um, where there are certain keystone organisms that are essential for health that a lot of people are either depleted in or don't actually even have because of a result of these changes. And so as we come to understand that this previously, the old germ theory, that the microbial world was trying to kill us, and our whole idea of what we mean by infection is going to rapidly evolve into one where we are a continuum. So one way I like to explain this is we tend to think of ourselves as a noun. We are a thing separate from other things. I want to suggest an alternate way to think about this is we are a verb. Instead of being a human being as a noun, we are a human being as a verb. We are an immensely complex process of processes that exists in a much larger process of processes. And there is energy and information that flows through this entire system in an immensely complex way. And we come in with an infinitesimal amount of information, and we start disturbing a system that is the product of an enormous amount of evolutionary time. It's hard to even conceive where the beginning is, so I can't tell you it's millions of years or hundreds of millions of years or even billions of years. It's a long time. We're seeing something that has been optimized over an incredibly long period of time, and in our arrogance, we think we can make it better.
Um, and so as we come to recalibrate who we are and how we think, we are better if we focus our energies and our attentions in trying to understand who we are and how we function before we decide we're qualified to fix it. Yeah, yeah, it's, and that's the thing. It's like I try to explain to a lot of athletes how dynamic the variables are when they're trying to get a, just a hard and fast answer for what they do. And, and you just said it much more elegantly than I did about how dynamic our system is and that we are a being and it's it's a moving verb, not a static noun. That's, yeah, it's being shown with the... I don't know with the with the trillions of bacteria that outnumber our native cells, and then uh, you know that's well, yeah, and it's all part of that whole cycle of life, and that we exist as part of that that cycle, and as do the the bacteria and the plants and the animals we eat, and, and once you take when you take one one single element like this nitrosomonas bacteria out of the system. You create a cascade effect of, of effects that we don't even yet know about. And like you say, we're on the threshold of starting to just understand it at best. Think about this, which is there's a word I've learned from French viticulture, winemaking. It's called terroir. And it was the biological imprint of the soil on the grapes that grow there. Um, and and the, the, the older concept was this was the minerals and the climate but in fact, it is actually literally the biological imprint. It's all of the microbiota that are there that are part of all the organisms that grow there. And we, as an organism, have a terroir as well. So as we moved from living as troops of hunter-gatherers toward we developed agriculture and animal husbandry and chemistry and technology, we cut those relationships the whole move towards urbanization was about cutting those relationships. We didn't know they were there, so we didn't understand what the implications of what it is that we're doing. And again, I'm not suggesting we're going to go back and live that way because that's the only path to health. What I'm suggesting is we better understand what those relationships are. And as we, as we move forward, we try to do things which restore those because those were an essential part of our health, restoring our terroir, the restoring the relationships that supported the healthy organism rather than ones that predisposed it towards instability and illness. That, that is so, that hits home for me because, you know, I live part-time in France and, you know, the, the French, I mean, besides sex, politics, and and um, food, terroir is the fourth subject that's always spoken about. I can tell you that right now. But the the, the value of one's earth is it, is immensely popular in French culture. And I mean, I, I think it even, you know, when whenever you talk to somebody with wine and that kind of thing. Um, but you know, then it also makes a point that it, it's true. Even to this day, the, many French don't take showers every single day. Um, you know, and at least they're not as obsessed about it as I find Americans to be. Um, and certainly if you look in, you know, history, it was it was never the case. They were always, uh, you know, the ones, um, you know, not making a big deal about bathing and, and even waiting to bathe, you know, as if you read Napoleon's history and such. But, but anyway, back to the terroir, that's, um, I, I think that's so integral and, 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 and we're just, 
the stuff we're putting back into the our terroir in America is is just a exclamation point on how we're probably destroying ourselves versus trying to further ourselves and you know that's I think that's one thing that has to change if we're going to you know progress and make our physiology you know back you know get our homeostasis back to a good place and you know certainly where it's where, where we don't have it today well, and that—that's the whole underpinning for OFM—is—is—is is, is to optimize the fat metabolism. You know, the whole, my whole underpinning of this is to get us back to that place where those evolutionary pressures shaped us. Because, as I've said before, there's some anthropological papers out there that suggest that, you know, Paleolithic man for or you know Homo sapiens Neanderthals during those periods were a much more robust. Um, model of health and fitness compared to today's athletes. They they actually make a lot of today's athletes look pretty wimpy. Um, and I and I think that the ones we can still study because they still exist. The very limited number of um, uncontacted tribes, tribes that we have not already started feeding products and 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 some of our ideas into. Um, they're free from most of the diseases we have. They, they live well into their sixth and seventh decade of life, particularly in terms of things like the skin diseases that we've been studying. 85, 90% of modern man, adolescents have acne. Anywhere between 25 and 40 or 50% of adult women now, these numbers are all increasing by the way, um, and uh, about anywhere between 10 and 25% of adult men have acne. Uh, eczema, rosacea, all of these numbers seem to be increasing. If you go back to these primitive tribes, the ones that we can still find, while they're still there, the model for what health on an evolutionary scale may have looked like, their skin is immaculate. They don't have them. There are in, in, two, in two tribes that were studied, there were zero cases of acne discovered, zero. Um, yeah, this was something that the uh, Eskimos and Inuits discovered too. That um, adolescents in in modern times were getting these raging acne, and the elders who remembered back on their native diet said this did not exist prior to didn't exist. S- similarly, their dentition, their teeth, they didn't have tooth decay. Yep. Um, and that's both from the fossil record, but it's also from modern. And in fact, if you do a search, if you, you want to have some fun, do an image search on Yanamami, um, Y-A-N-A-M-A-M-I. They are a group of uh, Amerindians. Uh, they've been living the same way for at least 11,000 years in the Amazon. Any of you who took anthropology will know there's a very famous book called Yanamami, The Fierce People. But you can do an image search for them, and you will see images of their faces and their skin is immaculate. Modern man or woman in particular would kill for skin as immaculate as theirs well into old age. The only images of their skin you'll find that are anything other than absolutely pristine have measles. And where did they get that from? So if we want want to look at what health looks like, we have to try to... So what we're doing here is, look, this is... We believe that restoring this... Keystone ancestral species is a necessary component for health because it appears to be not just a ancestral keystone species in humans, 
it is found literally everywhere except for us. The absence on us is notable. So we are essentially creating an infection of healthy bacteria with these nitrosomonas, but almost as important and perhaps more important, we're creating an infection of healthy ideas. We are provoking people to look at their preconceptions about their relationship to the microbial world, their practices, the things they do every day because they're concerned about their health, the way that they understand their relationship to the world in which they live. We're starting those conversations with this product. And those conversations yeah. go a lot of different directions, but here's the one place they will never go once they've happened. They will never go back to the place before the conversation ever happened. And people will come slowly on this journey, everyone's journey is a little bit different, to understand health in a little bit of a different way. And as we continue to go down this path, not just what we're doing, but with the, all the work that's being, doing, being uh, done on the gut microbiome, and that's a, it's getting very crowded in the gut with all the people working on it. Um, in the oral microbiome, there's a lot of work being done in the vaginal microbiome as well. Uh, agriculture is starting to look at this. Uh, I met with a group earlier today that is looking at the building microbiome. That is, these are the places we live. We have connections with those. As we come to understand that the boundaries are not where we thought they were, we will come to a better understanding of who we are and how to be healthy. Wow. So uh, anything else you'd like to say to close on this? Because we've this, I think this is a lot for people to, this is pretty profound stuff for people to digest. <coughs> um, I'm good. Larry or Dr. Uh, Edwards? I think this is just a, it, it's a great example of, you know, how Peter and I, you know, working, we're, I think we're very ahead of the curve and it's just one example of, you know, how, you know, we're, what OFM is all about and um, just furthering the science and staying ahead of it, um, you know, and it, it took some real outside thinking to do some of the things we've done with this, you know, like uh, introducing it to an athlete like, you know, like Ro Roman Bardet and, and 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 others he's not the only one you know um so i think it's yeah it's a great thing and i think beyond that there's so many applications for this to to use on our patients and and, and just people who you see who can't get better and 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 it's going to evolve into to, to cardiac treatment you know and the furthering uh curing you know, the hypoxia, you know, of cells, it's going to stem into cancer treatments eventually. So, yeah, all this thinking, I think, it, um, yeah, it's just very productive. And and uh, I, I'm truly excited, uh, yeah, to keep pushing this and learning more about it. And, you know, and in medical school, I'm sure Dr. Weiss will agree, <laughs> this is stuff you do not talk about. And unless you're motivated to go learn it on your own, uh, just like nutrition, you know, unless you were motivated to go learn it on your own, um, you know, just, uh, I think that's what these kind of subjects do. And, you know, that's the, that's the good and the, you know, and something to be, you know, grateful for really. Yeah. Well, 
you know, Larry, I think what we're going to be doing is, is this a great starter uh, conversation with you? I think we're going to have you back probably in three or four months once we start to see some data emerge and see some more uh, real world results. And, um, you know, it's, I think this is going to be an interesting journey. I think we can kind of help get the word out because everybody's looking at athletes and what they're doing. And um, the whole fat adaptation sphere is now starting to become something quite trendy. Uh, when I started doing this years ago, all I did was get laughed at and ridiculed. But now all of a sudden, it seems to be popular. <laughs> so um, and I think this whole idea of repopulating our body and getting back in sync with the natural biome is huge. And, and we're just excited to work with you. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to working with you guys. There's a lot of very interesting work to do. Uh, the stuff that you have done um, with um, with Vespa itself, um, you know, when you're doing this kind of stuff and people are telling you that, you know, that it's, it's crazy or it's impossible, what I usually tell them is thank you. Because if we're really, if, we, if they're not telling us that, then we're really not pushing the envelope and challenging. And, and I'm a pathologically optimistic cynic. Um, there are better answers. There's better understanding. Uh, we can always do better. We need to retain a humility and a healthy skepticism about all the things that we're doing. That's the foundation for good science. And I'm incredibly excited about working with you guys. I think the population you're working with, you know, we as doctors, we tend to work with sick people. Um, I think that's important. We need to do better job for sick people. No one would disagree with that. But I think to the extent that we don't focus some effort on understanding what do we mean by health? Are we treating disease or are we restoring health? And those two things, while not mutually exclusive. Well, they weren't, weren't even exclusive in sports until now. And that's, that's kind of the, the mission that we have is to lead sports to getting these athletes back to that uh, natural robustness that we're actually shaped to be. And they'll set a standard for other people to follow. You don't, you don't have right. to be an elite athlete to get benefit from it. But what we learn from this will inform people in ways that they can make decisions. And these athletes, they're influencers. People pay attention to what they're doing. And it's in a really important way. If we're going to have impact and have an impact on the, on the population outside the spheres of our, you know, our, of our influence, we're going to have lots of different touch points where people see this idea and go, hey, that's interesting, and get drawn into it in a way that actually changes their life and makes them healthier. So I am, I'm, I'm thrilled that you guys invited me to participate in this, and I'm very excited about working with you guys in the future. Yeah, it's going to be great. Thanks very much. You are listening to Food for Thought, the OFM podcast, sponsored by Vespa.